Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. Tomorrow, Tuesday the 16th of February, is Shrove Tuesday, a traditional Christian holiday which today is famous for eating pancakes but is also historically known as one of the main days on which traditional types of football have been played. So this episode is going to look back at the history of folk football, the shorthand way of describing the many different types of football which existed before the game was codified in the mid-19th century and divided into its modern versions of soccer, rugby and the other football codes. Although English soccer likes to think of itself as the home of football, in reality Britain was just one of many regions around the world which for millennia have played games which we today call football or rugby. In France, Soule occupied much the same place in popular culture as football historically has done in Britain, while in Italy, Calcio Fiorentino became a major feature of life in Florence as part of Christian festivals in the 15th and 16th centuries. But these were merely the most well-known European versions of the game. The simple truth is that most cultures in most regions of the world over time have played games with a ball that is propelled by a hand or by foot or by both towards some form of goal. From the Americas to Aboriginal Australia, humans have found pleasure, fascination and deep satisfaction playing and watching these games, which they may or may not have called football. In China, Suju emerged from a form of military training and survived in various forms for over 1500 years. Women also played the game and, in its later years, professionals were engaged to play the sport. Some football games, like Olama and other ball games in Mesoamerica, had a religious or ritual significance. But none of these games, nor British folk football itself, was either a direct ancestor or the inspiration for the modern games of football we know today. In Britain, the first written reference to football appears to be William Fitzstephen's preface to his 1174 biography of Thomas Becket, which describes a Shrove Tuesday game between London apprentices. By Shakespeare's time, football had become such a part of the national culture that it was commonly talked about in literature, perhaps most notably in King Lear, when the Earl of Kent taunts a servant as a base football player. In Britain, folk football developed as part of the rhythms of life in a rural society. Matches were staged as local customs during the ebbs and flows of an agricultural economy. Games played across Britain and Ireland during this time on festive days like Shrove Tuesday were often events where teams of hundreds tried to carry, kick and throw a ball to goal to tie the end of a village or town. The Shrove Tuesday game in Derby reputedly involved 1,000 players. The game in Sedgefield, 800. Dis Commons game in Norfolk had 600 playing, while at Annick in Northumberland, 200 lined up for its annual match. With so many participants, the playing area had to be huge. Goals were three miles apart for the Ashbourne game in Derbyshire. At Workington, they were set at Kerwins Hall at one end of the town and at the harbour at the other, while in Whitehaven, there was one goal on the docks and the other on a wall outside the town. But this large-scale football was not the only version of the game that was played. Some games were far more organised and based on clearly defined rules. For example, in 1789, Cumberland played Westmoreland in a 22-a-side match at London's Kennington Common. In East Anglia from the 15th to the 18th century, a football game called Camp Ball was played between teams of 10 or 15 aside who had to carry the ball to their opponent's goal. Camping was also played on dedicated pitches, known as camping closes. Hurling to goals was a version of the game played in Cornwall between teams of 15 to 30 players and, like camp ball, allowed forms of blocking, not unlike modern American or Canadian football, and required a player to throw the ball to a teammate when tackled. 
Moreover, folk football was not always restricted to men. In October 1726, women played a six-a-side match on Bath's bowling green. In the late 1700s, married women played unmarried women in a match at Inveresk in Scotland, and as late as 1888, women took part in the annual Uppies vs Doonies match at Kirkwall in the Orkney Islands. The large crowds playing and watching football were sometimes viewed suspiciously by the authorities, and not without good cause. As early as 1480, villagers protested against the enclosure of land at Bethesden in Kent by occupying and playing football on it. The game was banned in Ireland in 1719 by the British authorities because they felt it was used as a pretense for tumultuous and numerous meetings. In 1740 at Kettering, a match was a cover for the attempted destruction of a local mill. Indeed, as Joseph Strutt, the early historian of sport, pointed out in 1801, football had always been much in vogue amongst the common people of England. However, even by the time Strutt wrote this, football was under attack from the economic and social forces which were transforming Britain from a rural agricultural society into an urban industrial power. The privatisation of common lands, a process known as enclosure, swept away many traditional leisure activities of rural life. As a Suffolk vicar explained in 1844, his village no longer had a green or common for active sports. Some 30 years ago, I am told, they had a right to a playground on a particular field and were then celebrated for their football. But somehow or other, this right has been lost and the field is now under the plough. In countless other towns and villages, businessmen, religious evangelicals and moral reformers campaigned to ban football games which disrupted business life in towns and villages. In 1835, the Highways Act banned football from being played on roads. Not all footballers gave the game up that easily. Attempts to stop Derby's Shrovetide football match from being played were regularly frustrated by determined opposition before it was finally repressed in the 1850s. A few folk football games continued to be played informally in streets, at festivals and during holiday times, and some survive today, like the Ashbourne game in Derbyshire or the Kirkwall Bar game in the Orkney Islands. A handful of small-sided, more organised football matches did take place in the first half of the 19th century. Rochdale staged games between teams dubbed the Bodyguards and the Fearnoughts in the 1840s. On Good Friday in 1852, a match between Enderby in Leicestershire and Homefirth in West Yorkshire was arranged to be played at Sheffield's Hyde Park. But these were one-off events arranged for specific occasions. Unlike the modern game, there were no organised competitions or nationally agreed rules for football matches at this time. Indeed, Organised football matches like these were so few and far between that in 1842 the Nottingham Review newspaper complained that the field games of old England have almost entirely passed away. Football has become obsolete and forgotten, like an old-fashioned in apparel or a custom known only by its name. The decline of football in the first half of the 19th century can also be seen in the sports weeklies of the time, such as Bell's Life, The Field and dozens of local daily newspapers. They carried extensive coverage of cricket, boxing, horse racing and many other sports, but almost nothing on football. But why didn't football become popular in the 1700s, like cricket, boxing and horse racing, all of which codified their rules and became commercial spectator attractions in the second half of the 18th century? The answer is quite simply that football did not have the support of the leisured rich, known as the fancy in England, who provided financial backing to cricket, boxing and racing. Football's lower class status and its reputation for physical, sometimes violent play 
meant that it could not develop like cricket because young aristocrats would not play contact sports against the working classes. It was okay to have a labourer bowl a cricket ball at you while you were batting, but the sons of the nobility would draw the line at being tackled and forced to the ground, as would happen in football. What's more, football's lack of commonly agreed rules made it unsuitable for gambling, the economic power which transformed cricket, boxing and the other 18th century sports. So without aristocratic patronage or the need for gambling regulations, there was no force that could standardise the rules of football or impose a governing structure, as the MCC had in cricket and the jockey club did in horse racing. In fact, football, as we know it in its various codes today, could only develop later, in the industrial urban capitalism of the late 19th century. Its rules were then codified by those who governed that modern capitalist society and its structures were built on the national transport, communications and media networks which large-scale industry required. But most of all, modern football needed a large working-class population with sufficient leisure time and disposable income to be able to transform the matches they watched on their Saturday afternoons off from work into the thrilling, spontaneous drama which Australian novelist Thomas Keneally would later describe as the grand opera of the proletariat. Because without the masses, football is nothing. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As I'm sure you know, my Twitter handle is at Collins Tony and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find a complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes, along with the show notes and links for this episode. Until next week, thanks for listening.